You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. So let me start here today. Um, you're probably not actually aware of this. Uh, it would actually be a really easy thing to miss because no one's talking about it right now, uh, but there is an election on Tuesday. <sighs> and in light of that, uh, I, I wanna start just by uh, encouraging you with four things. I wanna give you just four things. This is um, all free this morning. This isn't a part of our text. I just wanna take a moment in light of the week that is to encourage you in four ways uh, as you think about walking into uh, the week that's in front of us. Uh, number one, I wanna just remind us first uh, that politics are something, but they aren't everything. And I, I think that would be a good thing for us just to collectively affirm today. They are something, politics are something, but, but they aren't everything. Uh, so it is something though. Uh, God has gifted government to play a particular role in um, our lives and there are better and worse governments. So it is something, but politics are not everything. They're not everything. Uh, years ago, I read a book by a guy named Ed Welch and the title of the book, I just love the title. Um, the title was called When People Are Big and God Is Small which I think is such an interesting way to frame one of our problems in life. Um, you know, the, the Bible is clear that nothing is as big as God. God is ultimate. He is the king of the universe. But it's possible for God to shrink in our hearts and become really small. And when that shrinking happens in our heart, one of the problems that, that happen is people begin to inflate uh, they, they get really big in our life. So problems like fear of man and social anxieties and all these sort of things begin to become big problems because God has shrunk and people have inflated in size. Now, I think in a very similar way, uh, politics can do that type of a thing. Uh, when God is big in our heart, when God is looming large inside of us, politics say stay, it kind of say safely in that category of something in our life. But when God begins to shrink in our life, when he begins to shrivel in our, in our hearts, politics have a way of inflating and becoming not something in our lives, but everything in our lives. And so I, I just, in some ways, want to implore all of us as a church family this week to, to keep politics safely within the category of a something and to leave God in the category of everything. Amen. Uh, and I, I think it's probably just a good reminder for us to have that the, the most important sort of political statement that the Bible offers and the Bible gives is this, Jesus is king. That, that's the most important political statement there is in the Bible, Jesus is king. And King Jesus campaigns with two great speeches. Uh, speech one is a speech called a bloody wrath absorbing cross. A speech two is called an empty tomb. And he is the king that keeps every single promise. He is the king whose term never ends. And he is the king who in the end will never disappoint a one of us. Amen? Amen. Jesus is king. So church, can we just remember that this week? That Jesus is everything and politics are something. It's an important something, but it's just something. Jesus is everything. Uh, number two, I, I want to encourage you to vote this week. Uh, to vote. A vote is stewarding your influence for the something that government is. That, that's what a vote is. It's stewarding your influence for the something that government is. And in a democratic country, 
So that, that essentially means that, that um, our country is ruled not by a singular person, but by a people, you and I, it's ruled by people. Uh, so that, that means in a democratic country uh, that unless we have some sort of a principled reason not to, which very few people do, we, we should vote. And you should leverage your vote that you've been entrusted to help build the best something of politics that you can. So I, I want to just encourage you to vote. And when you vote, remember, your king is Jesus. Amen? You don't leave Jesus' kingdom when you come into a voting booth. You, you vote as a follower of King Jesus. So that means you should pray, that you should read your word, that you should be aware of issues, and that you should vote convictionally as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom. So vote, and remember, when you vote, you are, you are a subject of Jesus's. He is your master, King Jesus. Thirdly, and this is maybe the best thing I could maybe say today to you, is I just want to remind us all, the Bible tells us who wins in the end. Isn't that an amazing thing? I love the last two chapters of the Bible because that's what it shows us. It, it shows us who in the end wins. And we just need to be reminded of that in a week like this. In the end, Jesus wins. And do you know what that gives the ability of every follower of Jesus to do in a week like this? Every one of us should have this ability to, to do this particular thing because Jesus wins. To sleep. Like even in the midst of crazy, the fact that Jesus in the end wins should give you the ability to rest. Even in the midst of, of kind of cultural chaos, to, to sleep and, and to rest. There's this phrase in Daniel 4 that in some ways I just hope... Um, the Lord might just embed into your heart. We're going to talk about a little bit tonight as well as we come back for an elder-led prayer night. Uh, but it's this uh, one verse in, in Daniel chapter 4. And if someone were to ask me, uh, why can the people of God rest in a crazy week like this one? Why is that? I would quote this verse out of Daniel chapter 4. It's verse 25. Uh, here's the reason that we can rest. Uh, because we know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That's why. Because we know that God wins in the end, and even in the middle, he is controlling all the forces of history for his return, where he sets up his kingdom forever. But we know that. So let's remember who wins in the end. And then fourthly, I want to encourage everyone in our church family this week to pray and fast. Every single person in our church family to pray and fast. If this is your church family, I'm asking you to do that this week. And so just as a really tangible ask with fasting, um, I, I'm asking everybody in our church family from, let's say, Monday at dinner to Tuesday at dinner, that 24-hour period uh, for you to go without food, for you to fast this week. To, to fast and to pray. Uh, fasting is an opportunity to forego food for the sake of feasting on Jesus, primarily through word and prayer. So, so it's, it's foregoing food for something else so that our hearts can feast on and enjoy Jesus. And we do that primarily through word and prayer. So let's take the word first. Um, this week, we are developing just uh, what, something we're just calling an election week reading plan. Um, we're just grabbing some, some chunks of the Bible 
that we think in a week like this would be really good for our church family to meditate on, to think on this week. And we're gonna send that out tonight. I'm just gonna encourage everybody in our church family this week, let's prioritize reading these passages together. And really the bigger picture is this week, let's just commit to allowing the word of God to be the primary force shaping us and forming us this week. So that reading plan is going to come out tonight. Let's just feast on the scriptures together this week. And then let's pray. Let's fast so that we can feast both in word and in prayer. And tonight at 6.30, just to, to kind of kick that off and to start that, we're going to gather right here in this room tonight at 6.30 to pray, to pastor the Lord for the things that we as a country need, we as a church need. So I just want to encourage you and implore you to let's be a people doing that this week, fasting and praying. And if you can make it tonight at 6.30, we would love to have you tonight. And in light of that and just the, the wildness of the week that is, I would love just to start by praying. Uh, we, we could just start that right now. So if you'll bow your head with me, I just want to open us up and start us before Jesus this morning. And God, we are, as your people, we are asking you to help our hearts obsess with, stand on, gaze upon, you this week. And God, where you have grown small in us and other things have just been inflated to be so big, whether that's people or politics or whatever else we want to fill in the blank with, oh God, this week, would you begin to loom large again in us? God, would you remind us that politics are something, but they aren't, they aren't everything. You are everything. You are, oh God. God, would you, would you turn our attention to the end of time when you come back again, setting up your reign forever? So, oh God, would you do that? Would you be at work in us this week? God, may we as your people rest well knowing that you win in the end. So, oh God, help us be a people like that, praying and fasting and pleading and pestering you this week in prayer. Oh, God, help us. And it's in your good name. Amen. Okay, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, we have been, over the last several months, in a set of sermons called Parables. Uh, but in light of just the, the, really the wildness of 2020, and in particular of the week in front of us, um, I'm going to take a morning out of the Parables set of sermon that we're in, so that we together can think upon these six verses in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, let me just back up and say one thing about the book of Ephesians. Pound for pound, Ephesians is my favorite book in the Bible. It is an amazing six chapters. It's six chapters, 154 verses of just pure gospel gold. Anytime you're looking, like you're, you're thinking about reading the Bible and you're just like, where should I go to read today? You can do a lot worse than Ephesians. Ephesians always is a, is a great place to turn and I want to consider these six verses out of Ephesians chapter 4 with you. It starts like this in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let me take this passage in three parts. And I want you to notice these three parts because they're building on each other. This, has, this passage has logic in it. So you need to, to kind of get the sense of like, Paul lays a foundation and then he builds something on top of that. Then he lays something on top of that. So I just want you to follow along and notice the sort of logic that undergirds and is, and is embedded into this passage. Uh, so let me take it in three parts. Here's part one. Part of what this passage is showing us is that Jesus makes us new people. That Jesus makes us new people. Aren't we thankful that we have a God like that? That can make us new that does make us new. Now you see this reality of God making us new people in that word, therefore. You might just circle that word, therefore. Anytime you see a therefore, you need to ask, what's it there for, right? And typically it is pointing us back. Now, in particular in this text, in the narrow view, it would be pointing us right back to, to Ephesians chapter three, where it ends with Paul praying. But more broadly, it is pointing us back to the whole of chapter one through three. Now, let me just help kind of acclimate you to the broader sort of layout of the book of Ephesians. It divides neatly into two parts, and the first half is chapters one through three. And if you wanted to summarize chapters one through three of the book of Ephesians in one word, here's the word, done. That, that would be your one word summary. You could just condense it all down into that one word, done. The first three chapters are full of indicative statements. Those are statements of fact describing to us what Jesus has done on our behalf. That's the first three chapters. It's just full of those indicative statements. And it just over and over is reminding us of what has been done. Let me just give you a sampling. Uh, chapter one, verse four, God has chosen us. Uh, chapter one, verse five, he's predestined us for adoption. Chapter one, verse seven, he's redeemed and forgiven us. Chapter one, verse 11, he's gifted us an inheritance. Chapter one, verse 13, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Uh, in chapter two, one, one of the passages we talk about uh, uh, so often around here, he's taken our dead hearts and he's breathed life into them, making us uh, alive. He's taken uh, dead people and, and he's made them live. Uh, in chapter three, or, or let me back up, the, the, really the first three chapters of, of Ephesians, it's really just Paul holding up the good news of Jesus, uh, which he calls in chapter three, the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's just Paul holding up the gospel of Jesus so that, so that all of God's sons and daughters can just marvel at it, enjoy it, feast upon it. That's the, the first three chapters of Ephesians. It is Paul saying, Done. This is all that Jesus has done for you. And if you want to know, maybe in a, in a phrase, what he's done, Jesus makes us new people. This is what God has done to us and with us in the person of Jesus. He makes us new people. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. That's the first three chapters of Ephesians. The good news of Jesus radically reshapes us, remakes us, reorients us, renews everything about us. Um, one of the illustrations I've used periodically to describe this is with Augustine. He was an early church father. 
Um, he was in his early life addicted to sex and loose living. He was just really in his personal life, just an absolute train wreck. And then Jesus saved him. It just rescued him and, and changed him. And, and later on, he revisited the city of an old mistress of his, and the old mistress saw him and made a pass at Augustine. And after several stiff arms, she turned away in anger, just so frustrated at him. And, and then it occurred to her, oh, I think I know what the problem is. He just doesn't remember me. He, he, he forgot who I am. And so she turns and says, Augustine, it is I. And it's this famous quote of his where he turns around and looks back and says, yes, I know, but it is not I. Now, that is the story of everyone who is in Christ. Regardless of what you were, you're no longer that. You are a whole new you. Jesus really does make us new people. Now, here's the second part of the logic, the second step in the logic here. Paul goes on to say, new people then live new lives. So Jesus makes you a new person, and as a new person, you start to live a new life. That's the second piece of the logic here. And this is really the second half of the book of Ephesians. The first half is all indicatives. Here is what Jesus has done for you. There's only one command in the first three chapters of Ephesians, and that one command is to remember all that Jesus has done. Isn't that amazing? That's the first three chapters of Ephesians, all about what God has done for you in the person of Jesus. But then when you get to Ephesians chapter four, verse one, it's the hinge of the book of Ephesians. It's where everything turns in the book of Ephesians. And we go from what Jesus has done to now what we are to do. So you see it in verse four, verse one. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul says, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then chapters four through six are just full of imperatives. It switches from what Jesus has done to now in chapters four through six, what we are to do. Uh, you could summarize it this way. New people, that's chapters one through three. Chapters four through six, four through six live new lives. That's the emphasis. This is now what Paul is, is walking us into. And this new life that we are called to live is summarized in that word walk in Ephesians four, verse one. Uh, that, that word walk is... is is alluding to and, and, and pointing us toward a new pattern of living that reflects the new person. So you're a new person, and a walk is this new pattern of living that's being developed that is reflecting, oh, God has made me a new person. And, and this new person is now emerging and coming out of me in this new way of walking and living. And the next three chapters, Paul is just walking us into the various ways we walk differently. It's everything from um, our sexuality to the way that we speak to our emotions, in particular anger, to forgiveness, to parenting, to, met, uh, to, to marriage. He's got a lot he wants to talk about in the way that we walk. But notice here in Ephesians 4, verse, uh, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, notice the first place Paul goes. When he's talking about the new way that we walk, when he's going to say, here's the first thing I want to address. You're a new person. Now you're walking in a new way. Let me talk about that new walk. Here is the first thing I want to address with you. You see it in verse three. New lives eagerly maintain unity. Verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now that is interesting to me. 
that the first thing when Paul is talking about the new way we walk as followers of Jesus, the first thing, it's not marriage. It's not your speech. It's not, the, it's not that. Of all the, it, the first thing he wants to talk about is unity. That, that's first on Paul's agenda. Now, if there has ever been a year where unity has been tested, uh, both in our country and in, in the church of Jesus Christ at large, if there has ever been a year, 2020 is it, isn't it? Jeez, what, what a wild last 10 months. Um, a pandemic has happened. I mean, that, that's not a small thing. Another eruption of racial strife and tension. Controversy over reopening. For some, it's too soon. For some, it's, it's not soon enough. Uh, then you have masks. For some, they are just a, an absolute political statement. Uh, for others, they're an infringement upon our rights. But then for others, they're, they're one of the key sort of ways that we're trying to tamp down a pandemic. So you have all of those sort of issues. And then uh, on top of all of that, we have the most divisive election cycle of my lifetime. So I think it's fair to say, unlike any other time, at least in my, my life, we need to linger here in this passage as a church family. We need to let Paul remind us that new people live new lives. And that new life is eager it is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. That that is, that is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and made new by him, that we start to care about these things, that there is a deep eagerness in us that we will sacrifice millions of other things, lesser things, so that we can eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, let me be clear here that unity does not equal uniformity. Right? That's, not, that's not what unity means. Unity means that something is so heavy and weighty at the center that it holds and has the power to hold a diverse group of people together. That's unity. That there is something so precious in the center of us that it can, that it can sort of bind, even in all of our differences, it can bind us together. That's unity. And Paul says here, it's, it's that unity for a church family, for, for a follower of Jesus that we ought to be chasing and eagerly maintaining. Now, I want to just work out two things that we notice here about unity in this passage. Two things. And here's the first. This passage shows us that God creates unity. That God is the creator of unity. Uh, look there in verse 3. It's the unity of what? Of the Spirit. It's not a unity that, that you sort of create or that I create or that we sort of manufacture and make up. It's the unity of the Spirit. Now, th this, is, this is the point of Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul is talking about uh, the Jews and the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews and the Gentiles had a hatred for one another and a division uh, that uh, I don't even think there is a modern day example that would measure up to it. It was it was more pronounced and as deep as any present day division. But then look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter two. Listen to these words from Paul. He says, for he himself, this is the power of the gospel of God to create unity amongst a divided people, a different people, people that see the world differently. He says, for he himself, talking about Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, 
These two warring factions both won and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What an amazing text, right? That is an amazing text that just shows the power of the gospel to take warring factions, people who hate each other, are as different as you could be, and then to bring them together as one person, unified as one body. That that is an amazing text. And it's pointing us to the power of the good news of Jesus. Now, what is the good news of Jesus? Well, it would go something like this, that we have all sinned against God. That's the reason for our hostility, both vertically toward God and horizontally toward other people. Anytime you see two warring factions doing what warring factions do, just you ought to think this, I, I, that makes me hate sin. Because sin is the thing that is leading to that. It's underneath all of these sorts of things. It's the reason for our hostility. And because God is just, our sin has rightly provoked and earned his wrath. This is why Paul tells us in Romans 6 that the penalty of our sin is death. And that word death is not just a physical, you're going to die someday. That is a death that's in hell forever. That's the wrath that our sin has provoked in God. But God didn't leave us in our sin. God put on human flesh in the person of Jesus and he came and he lived perfectly among us. And then he was nailed to a tree, taking the punishment on the cross that our sin deserves. And then on the third day, he walked out of the tomb so that all those who put their faith in Jesus can be reconciled to God forever. That is the good news of Jesus. Now, just as an aside here, let me just take a moment and say, if if you have not stepped into that good news, received the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you've not done that, man, we as a church family just want to invite you into that. It'll change your life. Jesus can change your life. You can walk out of here today a completely new creation in Christ. And if you come into this new life with Jesus, here's what you're going to realize. You're going to realize that what unites us as a church isn't our ethnicity. It isn't our economic status. It's not our political positions. It's not what you think about a pandemic or what you think about this, that. It's not any of those things. What unites us is the fact that we have been rescued from coming wrath by Jesus. We have been made new by him. We've been invited into this incredibly bright future that he offers in heaven forever. That's what unites us as a church. It's it's these realities that are so heavy that when they sit in the middle of a diverse group of people, they have the power to bind us together and hold us together. That's what unites us. Now, this is actually what Paul is trying in some ways to draw our attention to in verses uh, four, five, and six. When he starts to rattle off all of these ones, there's seven ones. And all of those ones are showing us something about the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to bind a diverse group of people together. So he says, there's one God, there's one hope, there's one faith, there's one spirit, there's one body, there's one baptism, there's one Lord. Those are all expressions of God and the good news of Jesus. And it's these big things that when they are set in the middle of a church, 
They are big enough to, to, to bind diverse people together. This is what Paul is, is getting at here. Now, if you want to think of just an example of this, uh, I'll just give you one example of, of how this has happened in church history. If you were on the playground and you were picking teams to do really anything, you're picking teams to go do something, and, uh, and you were stuck with the team called 12 Disciples, you would be really discouraged. It's not the team you would pick. They're not your, um, they're not your blue chip players. That, that, that's not who the disciples were. They were a ragtag group of people, people, mostly uneducated, and they were from backgrounds that hated one another. They just, the, the backgrounds just didn't get along very well among some of them. So, so take this example as, as one. Uh, take Simon, who is called a zealot. Now, the zealots in the New Testament were the revolutionaries. They wanted to upend everything. And if they could kill a few Romans along the way, that's an added bonus. We're good with that. That, that was the zealots. And Simon, Simon was a zealot. And then on the other hand, you've got Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. Now think about what a tax collector is. He is friends with the very Romans uh, that the zealots want to kill, right? He, and not only is he friends with them, he's collecting money from the people of Israel to give to the Romans. He, he's the sort of guy that a zealot, it's like in the middle of upending things, if we kill a few of those too, that, that's perfectly fine with us. That's an acceptable loss in, in our kind of ledger, right? It's these two people that Jesus has said, I'll take one of those and I'll take one of those. I'm going to take those two sort of warring factions, one of each of those, so that I can show the unifying power of my gospel. Isn't that amazing? That is how big the gospel of Jesus Christ is, that when it sits uh, in, in the center of a group of people, it is big enough to bind us together even in our diversity. So maybe we can start to answer this question then. What's a church to do? How can a church survive with its many differences and with its many opinions? Uh, there's more to say than this, but there's never less to say than this. Here's how a church survives, and, and not only survives, but thrives. thrives. A church keeps its gaze upon God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's more to say, but there's not less to say. We keep our attention on the good news of Jesus. Unity is built by gazing at the biggest things. God, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you can bank on this when a church loses its obsession with Jesus, when Jesus becomes small, when it loses that obsession with Jesus, it will soon lose its unity as well. So church, here's one thing that we all just need to own out of this passage today. We need to make it our habit to obsess about the good news of Jesus to obsess over, just keep our gaze turned upward to God and of the person and work of Jesus. Maybe I could just ask you today, what feels biggest in your life right now? I mean, if you're just taking an honest assessment in your life right now, what feels the, I mean, not what you intellectually know like you should answer. Like it's not what is the right answer. It's what is inside of your heart the biggest thing? What looms largest? And church, if anything other than God himself and the person and work of Jesus, if anything else is in that slot, unity is impossible. 
It is impossible. And I just wonder if many of us today, we need to honestly deal with that question and maybe just repent today to bring to the Lord a shriveled up and shrunk Jesus and ask him to restore Jesus as the thing in our soul looming the largest. Just wonder if that's you, if that's, if that's me today, if we need to have that moment with the Lord today. So there's more to say, but there's not less than this. How, how does a church thrive amongst its differences? By gazing upon God, by keeping the biggest things in the universe, God and his gospel right before our eyes. So the first thing we learn in this passage about unity is that God creates it. The second thing we learn about unity is that we, by the grace of God, maintain it. That God has charged us to maintain the unity that, that he's created. Now, it'd be much easier to maintain uniformity, wouldn't it? If you don't agree with every single thing, then else. I mean, and there's some impulse in every one of us that, that kind of gravitates in that direction. Let me just go find the group of people who agree with me in every single little thing about life. Let me just go find those people. But this is not a call to uniformity. It's not to maintain uniformity. It is to maintain unity. So how do we deal with our differences? Okay, there's, there's first thing we want to say is by gazing upon Jesus. Always obsessing upon Jesus being huge to our heart, looming largest in our heart. That's the first thing we could say. And it's the biggest thing we can say. But I want to give a few more things to just contemplate and consider when it comes to pursuing unity amongst our diversity. Let me give you three sort of steps. I just want to build some categories for you to think of when you're thinking about maintaining unity. Let me just give you these three sort of steps to consider. Number one. When the scriptures speak clearly on essential issues, we obey. When the scriptures speak clearly on essential issues, Jesus is the king. So when he speaks clearly on essential issues, we obey. And there is no other option in that moment. The pursuit of unity is not a license to believe or to think or to, or to obey anything we want. It's not. Jesus is the king. And when he speaks clearly, on essential issues, we say yes to King Jesus. Now think about what an essential issue is. Essential issues are going to get right at the heart of who God is. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What are the scriptures? How is a person saved and rescued by God? Those are getting us down into the essentials. Now how about non-essentials? Well, think about what sort of things non-essentials are. Non-essentials are your preferred music style. Important, but it's just not an essential, right? Um, non-essentials are things like uh, your view of the end times. I mean, you, you may have 97 charts in your basement describing exactly how you think it's going down, and that's important, but it's just not essential, right? It, it, let's think of 2020. Um, is it essential that every single person in our church has absolute political agreement? I don't think that's an essential. I think there's important things to talk about in there, but I don't think that's an essential. Is it essential that we all see mask wearing? Do you wear it? Do you not? Do you see it this way? No, no I don't think that's an essential thing. I think those are all in the categories of non-essentials. Right? But when the scriptures speak clearly on essentials, we as Jesus' followers obey King Jesus. That's category one. Now here's category two. 
when the scriptures don't speak clearly and it's not an essential issue, I would just want to encourage everyone, do what you feel like most honors Jesus. Develop an opinion, pray, pray, read the words, figure out what does the Bible say about this, and then do what you think honors Jesus, convictionally, with an opinion, trying to persuade other people. But, but when, when the scriptures don't speak clearly on a particular issue, and it's not an essential issue, by all means, do what you think honors Jesus. But, but see the category there. The category is, it's not essential. In other words, it's not in the category of utmost importance in the Bible. And the Bible is not overtly clear on it. In those moments, we should, as followers of Jesus, convictionally read our Bible, pray, ask the Lord for help in figuring out what to do, form opinions and convictions on it, and do what we feel like most honors Jesus. Now that takes us to the third step. When those in your church have a different conviction on issues that are not clear and not essential. So we're in the category of not overtly clear in the scriptures and not essential. It's not, it's not in that small group of things that are essential in the scriptures. But when that's the category, here's what I'm asking all of us to do, is to prioritize unity. When we're in that category of things, to prioritize unity. On everything that is not clear, and not essential, we prioritize unity. Now, I, I wish I had time to, to do a deep dive in Romans 14 and 15. If you want to do a deep dive on this issue, I would just encourage you to take Romans 14 and 15 and spend your time there. I think that's a really helpful place to see all of the things that we're talking about here play out and how unity, if we're ever gonna have it, is gonna have to be lived out like this. If it's not clear and not essential, we prioritize unity. Now, part of prioritizing unity means that we refuse to demonize the other side. Part of prioritizing unity means we refuse to get behind our keyboard and stab our brothers and sisters online. Uh, part of what it means to prioritize unity is we stay relationally connected. Part of what it means to prioritize unity is that we are eager to maintain relationships. Part of what it means to prioritize unity is that, is that we, we make sure that we are talking to people who see and feel differently than us. We're not excluding them from our circles. We're not putting them over there in that category and us over here in this category. No, we're bringing them in and we're having good dialogue and good conversations on these sorts of things. Now, there's a famous axiom, and I would just commend this axiom to you as a way to, to parse how can we as a church thrive in the midst of our diversity. And that famous axiom goes something like this. In essentials, unity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. I mean, I'm just going to give you the, the freedom to feel differently than I do. I'm going to persuade. I'm going to tell you why I feel the way that I do. But I'm going to, if there's a shred of Christian freedom to protect, man, I'm going to give you that liberty. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. In all things, let's be gracious. Could our world not use a little more charity in our disagreements? Jeez. Could, could we not use a little more grace in the way that we're operating with one another, the way that we're engaging one another? Now, that leads us to the last thing here that I want you to notice um, out of this passage in Ephesians 4. What does unity require of us? The, the hardest thing about unity is not parsing the particulars about how do we thrive in our differences and all that. That's not the hardest thing about unity. 
The hardest thing about unity is that it requires a deeply formed character in us. That's the most difficult thing about unity. And Paul shows us what that deeply formed character is, that apart from having this sort of a deeply formed character in a church, in a group of people, unity will always be um, impossible. So he shows us what is that deeply formed character that unity requires, and here it is. Look in verse 2. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. How do we do that? In all humility. In all humility. Um, years ago, I read this um, sentence by John Stott, and it's forever stuck with me. He said this, At every stage of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy, and humility is our greatest friend. Do you know what the greatest friend to unity is in our church? Humility. Just the people that make up our church family walking in humility. And on the other hand, do you know what the, the greatest threat to unity is in our church? Pride. Pride. Pride sees the world through a meistic lens. The whole world, when pride is sort of at the, the, the center of our being, the, the whole world revolves around us. God revolves around us. People revolve around us. The whole world is revolving around our demands, what we want. And when God or other people don't give us exactly what we want, sparks begin to fly, right? That's pride. But humility puts an amazing gift into our hands. Do you know what that gift is that humility puts into our hands? Self-forgetfulness. We just stop looking at the world through the lens of what's, what, what, it's all about me. That, that meistic lens dies and self-forgetfulness lands in our hands. What, what a gift that is. To, if you're a dad in this room, what a gift humility or self-forgetfulness is in your family. If you're a mom, a wife, what, what a gift that is. If you're a single person in our church family, what a gift that is to your relational circle, to our church family, when, when we're just not seeing the world in a meistic way. I, I love how C.S. Lewis described humility. He said, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's not, it's not thinking, oh, shucks, I'm a terrible person. It's not that. He said, it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's just losing that meistic lens and walking and operating and living with a lot of self-forgetfulness. I just, I just have a hard time getting around to really thinking about me a lot. That's humility. Now, let me ask you this question. If uh, the people who know you, like your relational circle, if we were to give them a piece of paper and to say, hey, would you write the first five words that come to mind when you think about this person and that person's you? Uh, give me the first five words that come to mind. I want you to ask yourself this. Would humility make that list? Would humility make the list? Now, if when you think about that question, if your answer is no, I, I don't think it would, this is a chance for you to bring that before the Lord to repent and ask him to form this character in you. And listen, without it, unity will, will be impossible in your relationships, in our church family. I mean, th this is a high stakes issue, God forming this in us. 
So, so if that's not on the list, let's just, let's just beg the Lord today to start forming that in us. Like today, God, will you do whatever it takes to, to make me a humble person? Whatever it takes. How, how do we walk toward unity in all humility? Look at the second word. He pairs humility with gentleness, with all humility and gentleness. Our world has no place for gentleness in it. Our world is, gosh, if you just want to summarize it in an in a easy statement, it is the survival of the fittest. I mean, it is chew your way to the, the top. It is, our world is tense, it's harsh, it's trigger happy. It's just looking for someone or something to go off on. If you, if you don't believe me, just look at any social media feed, right? I, I, our world is crazy. It, it is the opposite of, of, of gentle. And listen, we have all been well discipled by our world. Think about in your life, when you don't get what you want, what do you do? I doubt gentleness is the first thing that comes to your mind, right? Often, when we don't get what we want, we scream louder, we punch harder, we do whatever it takes to get the thing that we want. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's just accepted business practice. It's just the way things are and the way things should, should, should happen. And you know what's crazy about that? In some ways, it actually works. In some ways, if you just punch a little harder or you scream a little louder, you actually will get a lot of things in this life. If you just kind of make it your motto uh, to, to climb over whoever you need to climb over, to bulldoze right through whoever you need to bulldoze, right, to step on the throat of whoever you need to step on to get the thing that you want, you're actually going to find yourself getting a few of the things that you want. But listen to the problem that John Newton describes, the, the author of Amazing Grace. Listen to the, how he talks about this. He says, Here, here's the problem with, with that way of operating, that sort of harsh, demanding, I will take what I want way of operating. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains his cause and silences his adversary if at the same time he loses that humble, tender frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made? I'm going, to, I'm going to read that one more. Just think about this for a moment. The next time that you want to respond in a really harsh, demanding way, what will it profit a man if he gains his cause, if he actually gets the thing that he wants, if he gains his cause and silences his adversary, if at the same time he loses that humble, tender, gentle frame of spirit in which the Lord delights and to which the promise of his presence is made. Maybe you could think about it this way. If you scream and push and climb over and step on others, you may find what you're after, but you'll never find Jesus there. Jesus will never be at the, the end of that road of stepping over, climbing over, beating down whoever you have to beat down to get the thing that you want. Our world has no place for gentleness, but Jesus does. Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That was great. I love that. Gentleness. That's a fruit of the Spirit. It's part of what God forms in us when he makes us new people. Galatians 6, 1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. 
God cares about gentleness. It's not an ancillary thing in the, in the sort of plans of God for your life. He wants to make you a gentle person. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. You know what's really precious when God sees? Gentleness. I love how Sinclair Ferguson talks about this. He says, there's probably no more beautiful quality in a Christian than meekness or gentleness. He says, it enhances manliness. Like if you want to be more of a man, add gentleness into your manliness. It enhances manliness. It adorns femininity. It is a jewel polished by the grace of God. That's gentleness. So let's apply it again. If somebody's filling out that paper, five words, would the word gentle be used to describe you? Is that going to make the list of words uh, that would go into the ecosystem of words to describe you and the character that God is forming in you? If not, this is a day where we need to bring that before the Lord and ask him to change us to repent of that, to plead with God to do whatever it takes for him to make us this type of a person. And then Paul gives one more in verse two. With all patience. I'm gonna just, in some ways, use the next phrase to describe what patience is. With all patience, bearing with one another in love. Patience, it's the ability to suffer long with another person. That a patient person has a long fuse. They're not easily agitated. You're not walking on eggshells around a patient person. For a patient person, their anger has been tamed by the power of Jesus. That that's a patient person. A patient person is a person with self-control. Again, listen to John Newton describe this. He says, whoever is truly humbled, they will not be easily angered nor harsh or critical of others. He will be compassionate and tender to the weaknesses of his fellow sinners, knowing that if there is a difference, like if there's a difference between that person and me, if there's any difference between us, it is grace alone which has made it. He knows that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart. Do you know that? Do you know that the only thing separating you from person A that we have a tendency to demonize, whoever that person is, you just fill in the blank over there. The only person between you and that person is the grace of God. That's what patient people know. And it produces patience in them. It's the source of their patience. Now, I was just thinking uh, this weekend about just the many ways God has shown patience to me in particular, like just think about your own life for a moment. I was thinking about just this weekend. I've lived for roughly 41 years and I have done more sinning against God than I know how to count. I don't even know how I would stop the list. I mean, the, 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 the many ways that I've sinned against God and it just, it's shameful how many ways there are. Now multiply that across the 7 billion people who are alive on the planet right now. And all the sinning that entails against God, all the sort of disrespectful ways that we have all collectively, all seven billion of us treated God, and then multiply that with the roughly 100 billion who have gone before us. And I'm just saying, that's a lot of sinning. 
right? I mean, that's a lot of offending God. That's a lot of doing wrong to God. And just, if, if you were God for a moment, right? Just put yourself in the place of God. If, if you were God, how would you respond to that collective sin against you? What, what would you do? I'll tell you what I would do. I would rent an entire season of CSI to figure out how to hide the bodies. I mean, there's going to be a lot of dead bodies somewhere. That's what I would do. But isn't it amazing? That's not how God has treated you. It's not how God has treated me. And Jesus is inviting us into his way of living. And you know what his way of living looks like? Patience. So let's go back again. If that piece of paper is in front of your relational circle of friends and they're asked to describe you in five words, would the word patient show up on the list? If not, that's not a cute thing that we laugh about and how we just don't have a long fuse. And No, that, that, is a, that is a deformity in our character that is still untouched in the way it needs to be by the grace of God. That, that is a sin against God that God wants to come in and heal in your life and in my life. That is something to be repented of and to ask God, to plead with God to come in and change us into this type of person, humble, gentle, patient. Without those words, we as a church will never have unity. We'll never coexist among the many differences that make us up as a church. It'll never happen in church. I'm asking us to take these character qualities seriously, to beg the Lord where we're deficient of these things, to beg the Lord for them. Okay, I want to end here. I want to end in a scene from Jesus's life. It's right before his death. And remember, Jesus's death is not just any death. It's the death that is about to pay for the sin, the, the entire weight of humanity's sin. All of that collective sin is about to come down on Jesus, pulverizing him. And right before he goes to that wrath-absorbing death on the cross, in John 17, we overhear him praying to his father. And listen to what he prays as we get to overhear him. He says, talking to, to God the Father, the, the glory that you, Father, has given me, I have given to them, my church, that they, my church, may be one even as we are one. Like, as unified as Father, Son, and Spirit are, Jesus is saying, I want my church to be that unified. Just like we are one, may they be one. He goes on to say, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Now listen to the reason for that, the, the so that. But why would that be so important that we as a church can walk humbly and gently and patiently in unity? Why would that be so important? So that the world may know that you sent me. Could the stakes be any higher than that? Jesus is saying here that the way we love one another, the way that we pursue and, and eagerly maintain unity, it is no small thing. No, no, our unity is one way a watching world knows Jesus is for real. Is that not sobering? That the way we eagerly maintain unity, 
you, me, in this church family, it is one way that God has given for a world to know that the God we love so much, Jesus, that he's real. So, so church, as crazy as our culture is right now, that craziness gives us that the church of Jesus Christ, this amazing opportunity to show the unifying power of the gospel. It's giving us that unique opportunity. Jesus is gifting us with this moment in time to show that something as big as the gospel of Jesus Christ, God himself can bind a people together in the midst of their differences. So church, may we go after that, amen? May we be a people who walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Will you pray with me? I want to give you a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that would not be helpful. We often summarize the good news of Jesus like this, that we're all idiots. It's the humbling part. It's a way of saying we're all sinners who have provoked the wrath of God. We're, we're all idiots. But we have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. He's rescued us. He's redeemed us. He's secured heaven forever for us. We have this incredibly bright future in Jesus. And anyone could get in on this. And we as a church just want to invite you in. If you're not in, we want you to be in on this. And this is the way you get in. You turn from your sin, from all the things that disqualify you before God. And then you hurl your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. You come to God with the empty hands of faith, offering him your life saying to him, I am trusting in the person and work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection to make me right with you, save me, rescue me. And God would love to invite you into this incredibly bright future this morning, to pull you into it, to give that to you. And if that's you this morning, if you need to take that decisive step toward Jesus, then right there where you are in the best way you know how, call out to the Lord. Ask him to rescue you. Offer him your life this morning. And for the rest of us in the room, may we eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit which God has purchased for us in the death of his son. May we, may we walk in humility, gentleness, patience. Oh God, would you help us in these things? Would you help us? God, would you prick our conscience and convict our heart where we are elevating differences above the big thing of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the big thing of you. God, would you, in the heart of our church family, help us see Jesus, 
God, God, would you turn our gaze upon the bigness of who you are? Would you, oh God, loom large in our hearts? And God, where we have shrunk you and shriveled Jesus, God, we just, we repent of that this morning. We ask for your help in that. And God, we ask for you to be restored to your rightful place in our heart. So God, would you help us, your people, today? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.